word this morning. I pray that we would understand it. I pray, Lord, we would be moved and respond in repentance towards your truth. Lord, help us to see the beauty of Christ even as we go through this text in 1 Kings. Lord, I pray that you would be my strength. And Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in what I seek to, to share this morning. I pray you would give me the words. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, morning, 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings chapter 21. I've entitled the message this morning, A Palace, A Vineyard, A Wicked Heart, and Man's Greatest Need. A Palace, A Vineyard, A Wicked Heart, and Man's Greatest Need. What we're going to be doing this morning is looking at the story of King Ahab and a man named Naboth. Um, it's interesting. Um, I don't know if you saw in the news this week. This last week, they announced, they've been working on it over a decade, but they may have come across the potentially a, one of the greatest archaeological finds in history. It was, a, it was, a, it was on... Um, in the Gihon Spring area of Israel, and it was an inscription of King Hezekiah, 8th century B.C. I thought that was exciting because uh, many people are, are putting it on the same level as the Dead Sea Scrolls, and potentially even greater in some regards. And uh, I thought it was exciting just as we're going through our study in 1 Kings, because one of the articles I was looking at, basically, it's not that... Uh, you always got to remember, archaeologists are constantly saying the word oops because every time they make strong statements to discredit the Bible, the study of archaeology is the study of making that assertion oops because over and over what appears to contradict ultimately will bring light to the fact that the, the Bible is true. The Bible is not true because of archaeology. Archaeology just simply reveals the truthfulness of the Bible when it's done correctly. And uh, so I thought that was exciting. This morning, we're going to continue to look at some scenes to try to help us understand the narrative. So why don't we jump in, and, and here we go. We're, what we're going to seek to do is we're going to look at this narrative, and then we're going to try to pull it all back together at the end and try to see how does this passage remind us of the hope and our need of Christmas. So let's jump in. Scene number one, Ahab wants Naboth's vineyard. Ahab wants Naboth's vineyard. We read in verse 1 of chapter 21. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab king of Samaria. We, we can remember this, I, I think, and, and it's helpful maybe to go through some, just jog our memory. Um, Naboth the Jezreelite. So if you remember when they had the battle on Mount Carmel, and Ahab left, and, and, and we saw Elijah run in front of the chariot, really just conjuring in our minds, like, what is the significance of that? And so many different ideas emerge of, of, of yet another way in which God was compelling Ahab to see the truthfulness of the prophet because he spoke his word. But he ran, and you remember the text tells us he was running towards Jezreel. And, and the Jezreel, you know, if you go to Israel, you're always constantly looking at the geography in the Jezreel Valley. And Jezreel was where the palace was. 
was where Ahab's palace existed. So it makes sense here that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel. And it was this verse that helps us to understand the location of Ahab's palace and why he would have been going to Jezreel. So we read in verse 2, after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. You look at this and uh, I don't, it's, it's amazing what you sometimes don't observe, not you, but what I, maybe you can relate with me. Have you, how many of you, when you read texts a little more carefully, you start to see things you've always speculated incorrectly? And I'll be honest with you, in, in, in knowing this story, I'd never really paid attention to the fact that he didn't want it so that he could have a vineyard. He wanted it for what purpose? He wanted a vegetable garden. Just always over, jumped over that. And, and that was his purpose. Uh, I remember uh, growing up in Chattanooga and all of those, you know, the, the Standardford Gap exit, Shalliford Road area. There's Shalliford exit over by Standardford Gap Road. And that area in the mid-80s was just woods. And I remember, you know, when people come in and say, hey, we want your land because we have a purpose for it. And I remember... I had a friend whose dad had some land, and he had gotten rid of it, and he had a chance to sell to the developers of Hamilton Place if he had just stayed there. It would have been a very profitable situation because a lot of times when people come in and say, hey, we want your land, they make it worth your while. And they say, hey, we think you're going to consider selling this to us, and we'll give you a lot of times double the value, sometimes triple the value if they really want it and they have the money. Well, Ahab, you get the sense in verse 2, he's not really worried, it almost seems, about getting this vineyard because he's King Ahab. And he wants this vineyard, he wants to use it for a vegetable garden, and he's going to make a deal for Naboth. I, I find it, uh, I found it really fascinating um, to see that if you look a little deeper into these words, the only place vegetable garden is used um, is in Deuteronomy 11.10. For the land that you are entering to take possession of it is not like the land of Egypt, which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. And, and, and some commentators have made the observation here, isn't it? sad that Ahab is constantly going against the purposes God has for the people of Israel, whether it be with false worship, but here it's almost as if he, he wants it to look more like Egypt than he does what God has made the land to be. It's an interesting observation, but one that we ought to consider because this is the pattern of Ahab and Jezebel. They constantly go against what God has revealed, and they seek to approach him in their own way and on their own terms, in their own wisdom. And so Naboth says to Ahab in verse 3, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father's.
is only uh, Naboth's way of saying, I'm not interested. But if we go a little further, it appears there's more going on than meets the eye. And the reason that this is thought this way is because of some passages uh, in the Old Testament. And, and I was reading in one place, and it says, Naboth knew the Old Testament understanding of land, that land ultimately belonged to God, who gave it to the families. He knew God brought Israel into the land, fulfilling his word to Abraham, driving out the previous residents, and through Joshua, allocating it to the tribes. Naboth knew that selling the land wasn't an option and that established laws kept the land in the families. Now, now think about this. Uh, it, it's interesting. Uh, Leviticus, Numbers, it, it says in Numbers 36, to give you an idea of how serious land was, the inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another, for every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. Ezekiel mentioned something about land. The prince shall not take any of the inheritance of the people, thrusting them out of their property. He shall give his sons their inheritance out of his own property, so that none of my people shall be scattered from his property. A lot of passages you could look at in the Old Testament that speak about how God had intended for the people to have that land and to pass it along. And there wasn't a, a stipulation or there was an allowance for the type of thing that Naboth is being asked of by King Ahab. And so there really might be, and I think there is, I think that what's happening is the way he answers Ahab is that he's seeking to be faithful to the law. He's seeking to honor God in how he handles his land. And what we're going to find here is that it's dearly costly to him in the way that he follows the law of God and neglects the opportunity for possible gain, for financial, I mean, a lot of financial prosperity, you would think, in the way that he is approached. So verse 4, And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him, for he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. Oh, poor Ahab. I remember when I was a teenager, my parents used to always tell me the story of when I was five, I was Ben's age, and I got in trouble, and I had to go to my room. And, and my dad always told me, he says, yeah, you were a really tough guy. He said, you were laying on your bed, and you were kicking the wall, and you were yelling out, I'm dying, I'm dying. I was in my room sulking. This is what King Ahab's doing here. King Ahab wants a vineyard, and he can't have it, and he's pouting. That's exactly what's taking place. He's like a five-year-old who wants another turn on the PlayStation and can't get it. And he has to go to his room. And he's vexed and sullen. Looking at this and thinking about this, our actions reveal our heart. That's a tough pill to swallow, isn't it? 
it's easy to look at that in regards to other people, but we have to all be the one who's the center of focus here. We've got to look at the mirror and see what the mirror is revealing. Our responses, our desires, our pursuits, our discontentment is all revealing of our heart before God. I want you to think about that. What are you longing for this morning? I'm not asking you what you should be longing for. What are you longing for? What are you pursuing in your life? If people could watch you at a distance and you didn't know it, but you were on a real-time documentary and they had video footage, what would everybody be convinced of that your number one pursuit was in your life? You see, Ahab has his pursuits. He has his desires. He's a man that reveals his discontentment. And all of it is pointing to his heart before God. I pray that we would have wisdom through the power of the Holy Spirit to understand that there's strings from our desires, strings from our pursuits, strings from our discontentment that come back to our heart and that we could see what the root cause is of all of these actions, behaviors, longings, and desires. That's what's happening with Ahab. He's laying on the bed. He wouldn't eat food. It's unbelievable, isn't it? But I'll tell you, we see the foolishness and the childishness of Ahab, but how many of you are honest with me this morning that all of us have acted like big babies before? I mean, it's easy to laugh at Ahab, but it takes one to know one, doesn't it? We understand it because we've been there. Now, again, that's not the way I'm going to try to come across to you. I want you to look at me in a respectful way. But sometimes it's the people in our households that understand who we really are. It's the people that spend the most time with us. It's the people that know us behind the scenes. There's reasons why you can find out a lot about a young man the way he treats his mom at home. There's reasons why you find out a lot about a man in the way, not so much that he treats his employees, but watch how he treats his wife. You get behind the scenes, and what's happening is it's all on display. It's all on display. A king who's lost his way. Uh, verse 18 of chapter 19 is interesting because you remember that passage back there? Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And you know what? It appears, as, as Philip Ryken makes the comment, and I was really blessed by this, it appears from what the text is suggesting that Naboth is one of the 7,000. Naboth is a man who fears God. He can't be bought. He's a man, even though he lives next to the palace, had a regard for the ways and the law of God. And he was a man who submitted to God, a man who followed his ways. Verse 5, but Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so vexed that you eat 
no food. And he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else, if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Wow. What horrible, horrible advice from Jezebel. What horrible counsel. I tell you, isn't it, it's a great lesson here about the need for godly marriages because God uses spouses a part of this sanctification journey. And so often when we're thinking fleshly and worldly in a way that's dishonoring to God, what we need in our marriage is what? We need a spouse to give us a godly perspective. We need a spouse to point us to the ways of the Lord. And what happens here, you get the sense of, uh, you know, young men, young women, um, if you're dating someone that doesn't love the Lord and it's going to, don't, don't just look at their profession. Look at what matters to them. Look at how they live. It'll tell you whether or not they love God. But, but don't be surprised if you marry someone who doesn't love God and God's not a priority. Don't be surprised if you get horrible advice from them and horrible counsel from them as a spouse. It's not just going to happen. Now it can happen out of God's grace. But don't make the exception the rule when it comes to the way that you choose how you ought to enter in. And you know, you think about here this ungodly marriage, this ungodly relationship. She now is satisfying all his discontentment, and she now is going to conspire, and he is going to be culpable in all that takes place, and she is moving him away from the ways of God. Scene two, Jezebel's evil plan. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal, and she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. I mean, what a sneaky, deceptive act. You see, she's using God to get what she wants. A fast had very specific reasons you would offer up a fast. It was to revere God. It was to seek after the Lord in repentance and holiness. And what is she doing? She's thinking, you know what? I can get this vineyard. Ahab is the king. There's no reason we can't have what we want, and I can make this happen. And so now she's going to use the guise of God working in the nation, a fast, in order to manipulate and she does that, proclaim a fast, set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, you have cursed God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. Wow, I mean, I mean, she committed a forgery, she tells a lie, she commits perjury, over and over and over, you see this plan and how wicked it is. And then you see what takes place as a result. Verse 11, and the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent the word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. 
And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. But he didn't. It's a lie. It's unjust. It's crooked. It's a kangaroo court. It's nuts. And what happens? They took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. What's really shocking, to go beyond what's already shocking, is if you look at 2 Kings 9, it says, As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of whom? His sons. So do you realize that what's happening here in 1 Kings 21 is not only involving the death of Naboth, but his sons are killed. Now you're thinking, how dare you? How, how can you manipulate? How can you be this wicked? And aren't you thankful for the strong leadership of the city that stood up faithfully against Jezebel? No, they're scared to death of her. And what do they do? They're just, yes, men, whatever you want. We'll do the exact same thing that you're wanting. They're culpable. They're conspiring now. All of this is living proof of what Paul speaks about in 1 Timothy, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So Jezebel now, they sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. It's true, and a lot of commentaries mention this, but do you, are you reminded in this story of what David did to Uriah? Are you reminded of Cain and Abel? Are you reminded over and over of all of these? Um, one commentary says Ahab is a David seizing what is dear to his neighbor and arranging for his neighbor's death. With with Jezebel, he is a Cain attacking a brother in Israel. Incited by Jezebel, he is Adam who takes forbidden fruit, the fruit of another's vineyard. And we're reminded in this as a backdrop story here, the righteous will suffer. The righteous will suffer. The righteous will face persecution. But we see in, in verse 20 of this chapter when Elijah approaches Ahab and says that he had been found the word is really interesting because it means, it, it literally is the idea that you're, you're found out, you, you are discovered. And, and it's comforting to know that the God who finds out the injustice of Ahab and Jezebel is the God who found out the truth of the story. The righteous indeed are blessed and the wickedness of the day is not the final word when it appears that the wicked are prospering and all that is happening is only favorable to the ungodly, we have to remember that God will vindicate the righteous, that the righteous will be found to be true unto God by His grace. Scene three, Ahab claims the vineyard. This is what he wanted. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. Now, he's happy now. He's out of his room. 
He's excited, verse 16, and as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. I found this to be fascinating because a lot of times, you know, if you're like me, we're wondering, like, what are some of the cultural implications here that we can't see just by face value reading? But one thing that helped me was that the implication of him taking possession of the vineyard is that the king would confiscate the property of an executed criminal in the non-Israelite world. That was a common custom. The king confiscates the property of an executed criminal. But that's not the custom, and that's not the law of the land in Israel. But yet again, what is he wanting to do? He doesn't want to follow the ways of God. He wants to follow Baal. He doesn't want to follow the heart of God for Israel. He wants to, in a sense, go back to Egypt, even with the vegetable garden. It's sort of like reflective of his heart and his disdain and his rebellion towards the ways of God. Scene four, Elijah declares judgment on Ahab. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, Shall dogs lick your own blood? Not a pretty sight. And that's exactly what he does. Verse 20, he said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? Here's Ahab and Elijah. They're meeting up again. And Elijah answers in verse 20, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. He didn't enjoy that vineyard very long, did he? It was short-lived. Came across this verse in, in reading and researching this in Job 20, that the exulting of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless but for a moment. I pray that one of the many lessons we learn from Ahab is the fleeting nature of pleasure with sin. If we could understand that. He, he overlooked everything. He received what he wanted so desperately, and now he is under the judgment of God. He's under the judgment of God. Sin is pleasurable for a season. Oh, the, oh, the deception of sin. Sin will take you further than you ever wanted to stray. It'll cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. It'll keep you longer than you ever intended to stay. It's filled with deception. I tell you, wouldn't it be, you would think, fruitful and hopeful if we could give ourselves advice 30 years ago, those that are older, and you could tell yourself as a teenager these principles and these truths, and you would pray that you might listen, but there's something about the foolishness and the lack of maturity so often amongst the young. 
Or what do they do? They can't see the long-term perspective. And teenager, I beg you, if you want to be wise, it'll not be because you're wise in your own eyes. It'll be because you submit to the ways of God. And when you submit to the ways of God, you find out that what appears to be foolishness on Naboth's decision, you think, wait a minute, that didn't serve him well. He's dead. Look at Ahab. He's getting the vineyard. But what we see is, again, you know, in the kingdom of God and in God's economy, the price tags change. What's cheap to the world is priceless with God. What's priceless with God is really cheap to the world. And we have to keep that in mind. And so now the judgment is given to him. 21, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut you off from Ahab every male Cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. And anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat, and anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Eat. There's a shocking change of events in scene five. It's almost like you read it and don't believe it. Ahab's repentance. It's almost like at this point you want to be like, do what? That's not the way this works. What we see here is confusing yet so profound because we see how God looks at this situation. And, and we look at verse 25, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his flesh, and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And then we see in verse 28, And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. This is tricky because a lot of people say things like, well, this was short-lived, this wasn't real repentance, and they point to the fruit of his actions in the next chapter. But there is reasons to say that for whatever it's worth, we have to take God's word as true. And what does God say about the reality of his repentance? God says twice that Ahab humbled himself. And not only that, God showed mercy to him in granting him a stay of execution. And, and, I, and I agree with, with Phil Reichen here. He's basically pointing to the fact that, that in all of this, we are left you know, wondering some valid questions based on his actions in the next chapter. But what we can't miss here is the mercy of God. And the mercy of God that's on display in Ahab's life. It really is. To a lot of people, this is the kind of mercy that is scandalous. We're more comfortable with a God of grace who rewards those who are just not that bad. We're okay with the guy who struggles, but he's trying. If he receives grace, we can almost understand that type of grace mindset. 
but when it comes to the most wicked man you could ever imagine, and you read about the mercy of God being displayed to him, often it causes us to be troubled with it. Yet we see the mercy and the grace of God. We see five scenes this morning. How in the world are we going to see anything in light of Christmas looking at Ahab killing Naboth and taking his vineyard? I pray that we would all see some connections here. I want to give you four Christmas takeaways in these last 10 minutes. Four Christmas takeaways. The first one I want you to consider as we think about what is the meaning of the season and how can we understand the hope of the gospel in a story like Ahab and Naboth. The first one, we were reminded of Jesus' greatness this Christmas as we look at Ahab. We're reminded of Jesus' greatness this Christmas as we look at Ahab. One of the themes in the background, this entire study, is God's faithfulness, Israel's rebellion, and the need for a greater king. The need for a greater king. I pray you're seeing this. Here we have a king over Israel. A king who is an idolater, a king who uses his position to enhance himself and not serve the people, a king who is arrogant, a king who is now murderous, a king who is selfish, is covetous, all kinds of realities. And yet we read about this king, we read about all of the disarray in Israel, And I pray that what it does is it makes us look at the whole narrative of the Scripture and say, wow, we really need a Savior. We really need a king, but not like these kings. We read in Isaiah chapter 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And notice how his reign is described. And notice how drastically different it is than that of King Ahab. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So I pray as we look at Ahab and we think of Naboth, I pray that it would give us a a glimpse of the glory of the fulfillment of a greater king that comes through the incarnation. One that Israel longed for. One that Israel desperately needed. And I pray we would see that that is the hope of Christmas. The second reality, though, this morning, it's not just we're reminded of Jesus' greatness as we look at the deficiencies of Ahab, but I believe we're reminded of our need this Christmas as we look at the sins of chapter 21. You may be thinking, what do you mean? I'm not Jezebel, and I'm not like Ahab. 
Well, I want you to take a closer look. Because I really believe that if you look hard enough into the character deficiencies that we find in chapter 21, I believe that you're denying reality if you say that you cannot relate to the sins that are listed. We look into this and we see right off the bat, we see disregard for God's word. It's easier for me to notice it in you than it is to notice it in my own heart. Can you relate with me? I can watch your life and I can see the way that you disregard the things of God and I might quickly discern it and pick it out. But so often, I give myself much more grace when it comes to my disregard for the Word of God. Do you ever relate to this? He didn't care what God's law said. He, he, he knew what God's Word said, but he didn't submit to it. This morning, do you see yourself living in need of grace over your disregard for the Word of God as it relates to you as a husband, as a teenager, as an employer, as an employee? I mean, think about all the different ways that the Word of God is authoritative and think about our responses to His Word and ask yourself, and I need to ask myself, are my responses to that authoritative word, do they reveal a heart of submission? Or if I'm honest, do they at times reveal an attitude of disregard? You see, I think that if we look closer, we begin to see that even though Ahab and Jezebel carry a reputation unlike hardly any in the Old Testament, we have a lot more in common than maybe at first glance. You see, not only do we see disregard for God's word, we see covetousness. You ever wanted something that someone else has and it's tore you up because you couldn't have it? This is meddling, isn't it? This is really getting in our business. But I'll tell you, I've been right where Ahab's been. I've wanted what others had desperately. I tell you, I think sometimes the, the, one of the shocks of grace is only, we only begin to understand it a little bit when we begin to see the, the corruption and the wickedness of our flesh. When we begin to see that apart from Christ, I'm no different than Ahab, it's only then that we begin to see the beauty and the scandal of grace. I believe with all my heart, if that is offensive to you, I suggest gently but firmly, you may have never understood the gospel. If you're offended at such a statement, because what we find here is, Paul is, is pointing to this reality in Colossians 3.5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. We all can relate to covetousness because we've all experienced it to one degree or another. There's many forms of it that look similar. There's jealousy, covetousness, all kinds of different sinful responses. But I tell you this to say, when we begin to identify with the sins in chapter 21, I pray that it would actually 
magnify our need. And it would help us to understand the Christmas season different. Not just that God is showing us his greatness and bringing Christ to us because we desperately need a greater king, but God is displaying how great of a need we truly have. This morning, have you considered that if your need wasn't that great, it wouldn't have required Christ coming as the God-man to die in your place a cruel, harsh death. But his death reveals our need, another sin that we can relate to here. We see pride. We see selfishness. How many times have we looked out for our own interest when we have the ability and the opportunity to serve and put others first? You ever, can you relate to that? Ahab's selfish. He has all these opportunities to serve the people, and yet, what does he do? He's worried about himself. He doesn't care about the people. He's worried about what he wants. He sulks. He whines. He complains. His discontentment is on display. I wonder today how many of us can relate to the sin of discontentment, where you're just not happy. And the hard reality is this, is that a new iPhone won't remove that discontentment. A new Sony PlayStation won't remove that discontentment. A brand new car won't remove that discontentment. The discontentment is reflective of a heart. And what we learn here is, is that there's hope in this. Because while we relate with Ahab, it points us to our need of Christ and what he brought. We see not only pride and selfishness, discontentment, we see murder. This is where you may think, well, I've got one up. I'm I struggle, but I haven't killed anyone as of yet. Well, we know Jesus speaks to us in the Sermon on the Mount, and he shows us that murder was rooted in their hearts. This is one of those we could check the box on. I haven't murdered anybody, but Jesus reveals that the heart of murder goes deeper. The heart of murder is more subtle. The heart of murder is far within our lives, and our responses to others, our anger, our hatred, all of those things reveal the same root attitude, the same sin. We see deception. Can we relate with being deceptive to others? Where we didn't want them to know the truth, but we sought to live a lie, or we sought to cover up the truth by deceptive tactics I think if we keep uncovering and we keep analyzing, we begin to see that while we can definitely point out the wicked nature of Jezebel and Ahab, there's a lot more in common than may meet the eye on the surface. We keep going here. We have this line. We have this fear of man over God. We see these people in leadership that could have stood up righteously to Jezebel, and yet they were scared of her. They weren't scared or reverent towards God. They were more afraid of man. All of these point to the reality that we need a Savior, that we need God to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And that's the message of substitution. We see our need and we see the fact for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, until we begin to identify with the Ahabs in the Bible and the Jezebels in the Bible, 
We don't see ourselves desperate for this type of substitution. We don't see ourselves desperate for a righteousness that's not from our best attempts to live like Christ, but a righteousness that is imputed to our account because of the mercy and the grace and the holiness of God displayed through the cross. And all of this points us to what we were reminded of this morning when Cully read. And when Cully read Matthew 1, 20, what did he read? She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We're also reminded of Jesus' uniqueness this Christmas as we look at Naboth. Did you catch that when you read what happened to Naboth, it's mysteriously similar to what happens to Jesus? You see a man who's righteous, and he's unrighteously set up amongst two bad guys. He's killed as a result outside of the city. There's strange similarities to Christ, But in even considering the similarities, we're reminded of the uniqueness of Christ. As Dr. Morita said, Jesus' enemies conspired against him too. They falsely accused him of blasphemy, mocked and beat him, eventually took him outside the city to kill him. Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel and the blood of Naboth. For their blood cries out for vengeance, but Jesus' blood cries out with forgiveness to everyone. Jesus is the innocent scapegoat offering salvation to the world and promising that one day the cries of the martyrs will be heard and their blood will be avenged. So I believe with all my heart as we look at the story of Naboth here in 1 Kings 21, I pray that it would thrill your heart because while there's similarities to Jesus It's not the same. Jesus is far unique, more unique, in a way that is truly astonishing, in a way that baffles all of us. We need a great high priest who relates to us, but it's not like us. We need one who is human, but one who's also divine. And this Christmas, even as we consider 1 Kings 21, we're reminded of the fact that we have a great high priest who stood in our place, who is unique and unlike any other human that has ever lived. The final reminder this year of Christmas, we are reminded, or today, not this year, hopefully, we are reminded of Jesus' grace this Christmas when we see the God who welcomes sinners to repent. What a hopeful story. How hopeful it is when we look at the heart of God towards those who have denied Him, towards those who are guilty, towards those who are undeserving. When we see the mercy of God on display, when we see the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Again, it's only in the mystery of the wisdom of God and His counsel that we'll come to fully understand what happened with Ahab in this story in 1 Kings 21. But one thing is certain, is the mercy of God is on full display, even in the way he deals with such a wicked king. And this Christmas, 
I pray that we would look and ponder the mercy of God. I want to read to you in closing this morning, John 1, 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the rights to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. So as we reflect on His greatness, as we reflect on our need, as we reflect on His uniqueness, as we reflect on His grace, I pray this season, this week, we bow before Him, acknowledging our need and worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you bow your head? Lord, I thank You for Your Word. Lord, there's so many lessons to chew on as we look at Ahab, the ministry of Elijah, even as we consider this man Naboth, Jezebel, the unjust leaders of the city. Lord, there's so many lessons. But I pray, O oh Lord, today, as we reflect on this season and what it means, I pray that we would see the, the uniqueness, the greatness, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that by your grace, through the power of your Holy Spirit, we would see our need. We would see the depths of our need and what it cost. That we would see the incarnation as a magnificent display, not only of the greatness of our need, but the depths of your love. I pray today that every person here would leave and the one thing we'd have in common is that all of us have been dependent upon the Lord Jesus to save us from our sin. I pray that all of us would see that truth and it would be dear to our heart and that we would all share in common a dependence, a trust, and a faith in Christ. I pray, O oh Lord, we would see the glory of your Son and what you've provided for us in the incarnation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.